You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Thank you, Pastor, and thank you for joining us here on our Wednesday night midweek worship. Uh, This is a new normal for all of us, so we appreciate you taking the time to worship with us. And uh, there's something about a midweek service that just helps us refocus and reconnect with the Lord and to help us get through the week uh, with purpose and with a worshipful spirit. So uh, I'm excited to share God's Word with you tonight. We've been in in a study in uh, Revelation on the churches there, and so there's something about this passage tonight that just speaks to right where we are in the world. So I hope that you'll be encouraged and that you'll be inspired, because it was sure a blessing to work on it. One of the great writers of the 20th century was J.R.R. Tolkien. He wrote a number of things. You've probably heard of The Hobbit and, and, and some others that are, that are famous. In his writings, there's a place called Lonely Mountain. It was the greatest city of Middle Earth. It was also called Erebor. Erebor was a place where the dwarves lived. They became numerous and prosperous. There was, there was wealth there. And this was a place for 211 years they lived there. That was home for them. Until one day, this reddish gold dragon named Smog, you remember Smog, he came in and decided, hey, I want the wealth for me. So he took over Lonely Mountain and kicked out the dwarves. And for 380 years, the dwarves lived in exile. They were at the Blue Mountains. And so, thankfully, before they left, there was a map and a key made that would give them entrance back into Erebor. And so one day, Gandalf and Thorin are talking, and they decided, hey, we're going to reclaim Erebor. And so they go to Bilbo Baggins' house. They talk to him about it. He's interested, and they, they break out the map to Erebor. And um, Gandalf is showing them, hey, there's a secret door, also called the back door, on the western side of the mountain. And if you'll go there and take this key, you can turn, and that door will open, and you will have access to Erebor again. And so Bilbo was, decided, hey, I'm going I'm to go on this journey. And so this journey became known as the Quest of Erebor. In fact, there was a book published called The Quest of Erebor. It was published after Tolkien died by his son Christopher. And so they began on this journey, and Bilbo and others. And it was over 100 days journey. They got lost on the way, but thankfully, they made it unharmed to Erebor. And so they searched. It took them several days to find this secret door. They finally found it, but then they couldn't figure out how to get in. And so they couldn't find the keyhole, and they're searching, searching, searching. Meanwhile, morale was getting low, and people were discouraged. And finally, the sun shone through and revealed this keyhole. And so Bilbo sees it, and he says, you know, it's, it, he sees the keyhole, and he starts hollering to everybody, come back, come back. And, and he's got the key, and, or he's, he's about, soon about to find the key. He had lost it uh, just for a moment. And so everybody comes back, Thorin takes the key, turns it into the keyhole, or puts it in there, turns it, and then he pushes the door open. And that was the moment. I mean, the door opened, and now after hundreds of years, they are now back at Erebor and are repossessing what belonged to them. And it all was possible because of the key of Erebor. And tonight, I want to talk to you about a key. Not the key of Erebor, but the key of David. And it was not owned, by, not owned by Gandalf, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said, I have the key of David, and I open and shut doors as I choose. And he can do that because he has all authority. And so I want you to look at Revelation 3 with me tonight, just at at six or seven verses here, beginning in verse 7. And we're going to talk about the key of David and what the key of David means for us as Christians and what it means for the world. And uh, I hope you'll be encouraged. And we're also going to look at, I find six things in this passage that as, as believers, what can we expect in a world filled with problems and persecution? You know, the, there's chaos in the world right now. And you may be wondering, what can I expect? There are six things in this passage that will encourage you. Six things that we can expect as the people of God. So join with me in, um, in uh, Revelation chapter 3 as we look at the persevering church of Philadelphia. The persevering church in Philadelphia. Last week it was the sleeping church in Sardis. And Jesus had a message for them. He said, wake up. And this week, it's the persevering church in Philadelphia. So uh, Revelation 3, verse 7, it begins, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. We've said before, this is, I believe, is Jesus is, it has a message for the pastor of the church at Philadelphia. And Jesus gives a threefold, um, three attributes about himself here. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David? Now, what's interesting about the, the first two, the Holy One and the True One, these are not adjectives. These are titles because there's an article right in front of them. So it really reads, you know, the Holy One, the True One. And so they are titles. And the Holy One, that goes back to the Old Testament. You remember in Isaiah uh, chapter 1 and verse 4, where it says the Holy One of Israel. So Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament, and Jesus is saying that he is God. Jesus is holy in his essence. It's not just an attribute, just he is God. There is no sin in him. And so he is holy. Now, we are commanded to be holy. Remember in 1 Peter in chapter 1, where he said, be holy. And so um, from God's perspective, once we receive Christ, positionally, we are holy, but we are not holy in our essence. We still have a sinful nature. Jesus is holy because he has never sinned. He is the Son of God. He is God, the Holy One. And then he also says, he refers to himself as the true one. True here has the Old Testament meaning of faithful. That that is, he who is faithful, the, the Holy One, the faithful one. And then he says, who has the key of David? Now, I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute, but I want to tell you, just for a, a, a couple of minutes here, a little bit about the church at Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia, I, I've noticed through this series, there's so much um, historical information that is so important to really understanding the message that Jesus has for each of these churches. We, we talked about that last week with Sardis, and we've looked at that before at different cities. But Philadelphia was the youngest of all the cities. It started in the second century B.C., whereas Sardis was one of the older ones. It was all the way back in 1200 B.C. So Philadelphia was a newer city. It was, uh, it was founded by someone named Italus II. He was the king of the empire of Pergamum at the time. And Italus, he had a nickname named Philadelphus. Okay, and so the name Philadelphia came from his nickname. So as you know, we have obviously the city of Philadelphia in the United States, and it's called the city of brotherly love. So that's what the name Philadelphus means. And it was, uh, it, it earned that, uh, Atalus had earned that nickname because he had a great relationship with his brother. 
And so um, Philadelphia was uh, a very agricultural city. It had um, um, a very fertile soil. It had volcanic soil. There had been volcanic eruptions in that area. So the soil was very fertile. It was known for growing grapes, which produced wine. And um, uh, so uh, agriculturally, it was a very wealthy city at, at certain times in its history. Um, it served as a platform to promote Greek culture. In fact, this is interesting, Philadelphia was known as a missionary city because when, when they founded it, they said, we want to promote Greek culture and the Greek language throughout this area. And so that city became a platform, became a missionary city to promote the Greek language. And so in the first century AD, Greek was the language spoken there instead of Latin, uh, the Roman Empire. So it's just pretty interesting. Geographically, it was located in a strategic area um, near one of the tributaries of the Hermas River, and it was located on a main trade route. And so uh, all the way, a road ran all the way from Smyrna all the way to the east. And so, uh, man, people were coming in and out of there. It was a great location. They were trading. It was a, a business area. And so it was a successful and wealthy area. But this area had, did have a couple of problems. Physically and economically. Physically, the city sat on either right on or right near a fault line. Uh, in AD 17, there had been a, a big earthquake in that area. In fact, uh, it affected that city and a number of other cities. About a dozen cities total in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, were affected because of this earthquake. And um, tremors or aftershocks were felt for even years after that. So there were physical um, problems associated with living in that area. And then there were economic problems. In AD 92, the Roman emperor Domitian, he forced at least 50% of the vineyards to be torn down so that new ones could be planted. Well, the problem was it took years for the new ones to reestablish themselves. So they lost like 50% of their crops. And the reason, there were either a couple of reasons. It was either because um, the emperor was trying to protect, protect the vine growers in Italy or because he wanted them to grow corn. Well, the problem was the volcanic soil in Philadelphia was not conducive to grow corn. So this really hurt them economically. And they were frustrated because they had been very loyal to the emperor in the past. And now he comes and says, hey, I'm going to tear down 50% of your, of your agricultural income. And so that hurt them politically and it drove, or economically, and it drove many of them into poverty. And so th this is just a little bit of the background of, of Philadelphia. And so when Jesus comes to them now and he has a word for them, this is where many of them are. They're frustrated with the government because they're, they're hurting them economically. They're frustrated because many of them even lived outside of the city because they were terrified to live in the city because of earthquakes. The walls are cracked. There's instability. And that's where the people were. And so Jesus comes to them. He, Jesus does not have a word of rebuke. You remember in some of the ones we've looked at in Revelation, there have been a rebuke. Just like last week, Jesus was saying, wake up to the church. You know, you, you think you're alive. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. Jesus does not have a rebuke for this church. He has encouragement. He has words of affirmation. They were small, it says. We'll, we'll see. But they were faithful to Christ. And so he encourages them. And I, I feel like where we are now, we, we need a word of encouragement. And so God has a word of encouragement for us. And so we said that Jesus identified himself as the Holy One. 
But then he also said, he's the true one. He's, that is, he's trustworthy. He's faithful. Goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And what it means is it's saying that Jesus was faithful to complete his task as the Messiah. He had been given a task by the Father to come and pay for the sins of the world and die on the cross, and then he rose again. Jesus was faithful to complete that task. Remember, he said in the garden, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was faithful to finish it. And because of that, he is trustworthy. Because of that, he, he is a God. We have a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is involved. He, we have a God now who is very involved with our lives right now. So we, don't, we may feel like God is distant, but he's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not remote. He is very much alive and well, and he's near. He is a God who is near, so we can trust him. And so you may find yourself tonight anxious, worried even, fearful, all of those things. And, 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 and we understand. I understand how you might feel that way because the challenges are real right now. But we have a God who's faithful. And so I encourage you to cast your care upon him, as God tells us. Cast your care upon the Lord. He will care for you. So encourage, be encouraged, brother. And so then Jesus comes. He says, who has the key of David? Now, what is the key of David? We've got to do a little background here. Uh, a key, as you know, is a means of acquiring access to something. You want to start your car, you, you need a key, at least in the ignition or at least somewhere in the car, you've got to have a key. In the old days, to check your post office box, you, you had to have a key. And so a key gives you access to something. The, the, the question is, though, what, what is the key of David and what type of access are we talking about? Well, this goes back to Isaiah 22, verse 22. In that verse, in that passage, the Lord overthrows someone, a man named Shebna. Shebna was over the royal household, and God replaced him with someone named Eliakim. Now, Eliakim was Hezekiah's steward. And so God would send Shebna to a distant land, which we feel like was probably Assyria. God says, I'm going to send you to a distant land and you're going to be overthrown, and I'm going to put Eliakim, Hezekiah's steward, in your position, who's over the royal household. And Eliakim would have this authority to rule over the affairs of David's household, and he would have the key of David on his shoulder, it says. So that means whatever he decided over that royal household, it was final. He was the man. He had the key. That means he had the authority. He had the power. And so Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I have the key of David. I have control over the royal household. Just as Eliakim had, had authority over the royal treasures of the, of, the, of the royal household, Jesus is saying, I have access to the Father. I control access to the Father, he says. You want to get to heaven? It comes through me, Jesus says, because he has the key. He is the one who has authority. Just as when you lock a door, it stays locked until someone opens it. It's, it's final. Jesus is saying, I have the authority. And when I say someone gets in, you get in. When I close the door, the door is shut. And so that's what it means. He says, I have the key of David, Jesus says, who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one will open. And so, man, what, what a, just a fascinating passage. And this is all in the first verse. So Jesus has identified himself, the Holy One, the True One, and the One who has the key of David. 
who has authority, who has power. And so now as we move into verses 8 through 13, we're going to see what can we expect as believers in a world filled with problems and persecution. And I want to show you six things that we can expect. I hope these will encourage you and they will edify you because, hey, you have problems, don't you? I have problems. We all have problems. And the question is, what can we expect as, as followers of Christ? What, what, what can we expect? And so um, this is what Jesus said. He said, I know your works. Remember, he, he said this a number of times in these letters. He said it to Thyatira, to Sardis. I, I know your works. It means he has full and complete and intimate knowledge of everything happening there. He knew exactly what was happening at Philadelphia. He knew about the earthquakes. He knew about the economic situation. He, he, he knew it all. And he says, I know your works. And, and instead of rebuking them, he encourages them. He says, behold. It's a term that is it's supposed to, to draw specific attention to a crucial point. And he says, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Now, ultimately, this is talking about heaven. Jesus is saying, hey, I have the key. And I've set before you this open door. I've opened the door because he laid down his life on the cross. He rose from the dead on the third day. He has opened the door. He has opened the door for anyone to go to heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what he's talking about. But specifically to this church and to us, is talking about a local mission opportunity. He's saying, I have set before you an open door. That is, you have a door open to you for evangelism. Right now in a place where you're, we're going to see it here in just a few minutes, they were experiencing persecution from Jews. They had all this economic instability. He says, I've, I've set an open door right in front of you. In the midst of everything you're going through, you have an opportunity for ministry. You can invest spiritually in your community right there at Philadelphia. That's what he's telling them. He's saying, you have a unique opportunity. There's something about open doors they're often associated with challenges. And you and I will often see the challenge and say, well, I mean, there's no open door here because there's challenges. And we often will run the other way when it's the opposite. the, The open door is right there. And sometimes the challenges will camouflage the opportunity for ministry. And so we need just the mind of Jesus Christ to see through the camouflage and to realize, hey, there's an opportunity here. I mean, yes, there is chaos, and yes, there are problems, but man, what an opportunity. And that's what he's telling him. Jesus is saying, I've given you an open door. It's, it's, it's wide open for you if you will just take advantage of it. And so you and I, man, we may have the greatest opportunity right now to share Jesus Christ with someone, someone we work with, someone we live next to. Man, I guarantee you, they're open. They're wondering what is happening. What is happening to my retirement? What is happening in the world? What is happening? People are dying. What is going on? We have an opportunity to minister with the gospel of Jesus Christ right in the middle of that. It's amazing. So Jesus says, I've given you an opportunity. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9? For a wide door for effective service or for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. There's a wide door, Paul said, man, for effective work. And there are many adversaries. So just because there's opposition, just because there's adversaries, don't let it camouflage the opportunity. 
There is an opportunity right now for us. And notice why Jesus says he's done this. He's opened the door, not because they're brilliant, not because they're enormous in size and they have so much influence politically in the area. In fact, it was the opposite. Jesus said, I know that you have little power. I know that you have but little power. And we think that means they're probably small in size and small in influence. Man, they, they, you know, the, the emperor is not there to help them out. He's the, the mayor of the city. He's, he's not going to help them out. They, all they could do was depend upon Christ. And he's saying, I know you have little power. I know you're not big. I know you're not influential. I, I know you don't own the town. I know you're not in control. I, I, I know all of those things, he says. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus is saying, you have been faithful. You have been obedient. Yes, you are small, but you have been, you have been faithful. And that's how God measures success. We, we see it differently oftentimes. And we think, well, success is numbers. Success is influence. And, and, and Jesus is saying success is faithfulness. You have obeyed me. You have trusted me. You have kept my word when it was not convenient. You have not denied my name. That is, not, that is when, it's, when it would have been easy for them to say, I, I, I don't know Jesus or, you know, I, I'm not one of those Christians. And Jesus said, you stayed, you stayed faithful even when it wasn't popular. You've not denied my name. They, they had not compromised. And it's, it's easy to compromise. It's easy to try. Well, I don't want to offend someone with the gospel. I, you know, I, I want to keep this relationship. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to overstep my bounds. They had been faithful. They had not denied the name of Christ. So here's the first thing we can expect in a world full of problems and a persecution. We can expect a local mission field. You and I, as long as we're on this earth, we can expect a local mission field, that God is going to give us opportunities. Some, some of you, that's in your home with, with unbelieving small children. They need Christ. They need you to share with them. That is your local mission field. And so others of you, it's your workplace. It's your neighborhood. And, and, and for me right now, it's mostly my neighborhood. And, and so you, we can expect a local mission field. As, as long as, as we're alive, we can expect that. And so people are wondering, can I find someone who genuinely cares about me? Are there, are there answers to what's going on in the world? And that's where we show up and we've got the gospel that will provide the answers. And so um, there was another earthquake years ago. Remember on October the 17th, 1989, San Francisco. Remember the Bay Area was hosting the World Series. It was supposed to be the third game of the World Series was about to come on. And it was the, they were playing the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's. I mean, the Bay Area was electric because their two teams were in the World Series. It was a big deal. And right before the game came on, about 30 minutes or so, at 5.04 p.m., a 15-second earthquake hit that area. 6.9 magnitude. Huge earthquake. And it shook the area, and about 3,000 people were injured. 67 people died. Just tragic. And through all of that, um, and, and, and one portion of the a bridge broke and 42 people died. And I remember I was growing up and, and um, I was in junior high at the time. And my student pastor was out there. He experienced the earthquake. He was out there in a meeting and in a hotel. He said flower vases were falling off the tables and busting. And 
There was a hotel across the road. The top floor just uh, collapsed. He said at two in the morning, there was an aftershock and he had a, a mirror f- fell off the wall and just broke on the a huge mirror, broke on the ground. It, w- it was a traumatic experience for people. Uh, but you know who, who, who went to minister right after that was Dr. Billy Graham. Dr. Billy Graham saw this as an opportunity to minister to people in light of this tragedy. And so he goes out there and this is what he said. I came here to see people. The damaged buildings you can see on television, but television can't show the damaged hearts and lives. Hopefully, I can encourage them to trust in God. And my friend, you and I have that opportunity now. We have that opportunity to go to people. Now, and I know we've, there's, there's a distance issue, and I, I understand that, but it may, be, it may even be me going to people on social media platforms or or you know, walking by their home and prayer walking over their, their home. There's different ways you can engage, but going to people as much as we can without being careless, but going to people and ministering to them because their hearts are hurting. That's, that's what Dr. Graham did. And we, 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 we know they're hurting, so we need to minister to them. So um, that's what Jesus said. We can expect a local mission field. Now, our next point is in verse 9. Jesus said, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, what is going on here? Well, in this verse, we see the tension that existed in this area. There was conflict between Jews and Christians. And Jesus is saying, the Jews... They were the ones who were saying, hey, we're the chosen people of God. And in a sense, they were right. Because in the Old Testament, God did choose Israel. Remember, in Exodus 19.6, God says, I've chosen you. All right, You are to be, to me, a kingdom of priests. So they were a separate people. In Isaiah 42.6, they were, they were to be a light to the nation. So, yes, the Jews were right. They were God's chosen people. The problem was they forfeited that right through unbelief. They refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And because of that, God's plan now moved on to the Gentiles. And so Paul said this in Romans 2, verse 20, verses 28 29. He said, a person is a Jew, not if you're circumcised outwardly, but if your heart is circumcised. That is, if you have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit, he says, and you, you live to please God and not man. That's, that's who a, a Jew is. A true Jew is someone who's a believer in Christ. And so uh, in, in, in Galatians 6.16, Paul referred to church as the Israel of God. Jesus referred, um, you remember in John chapter 8, he referred to uh, the Jews there. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's will. And so Jesus refers to these Jews here as a synagogue of Satan. That is, they're, they're unbelievers. They're not believers in Christ. They have denied Christ. And so because of that, they are of the evil one. So the synagogue was a place there where Satan ruled. It was filled with unbelievers. They claimed to be children of God, but they actually rejected Christ. And so he said that they lie. They're not, they're not speaking the truth. So Jesus says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Now, what what is he talking about here? This is is so interesting. It goes back to Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14. There was a promise that God gave to the Israelites there when they were in captivity. 
And he says, when you come back out of exile, the Gentile nations surrounding you will come and bow down at your feet and they will acknowledge that Yahweh is God. Now, in this passage here in Philadelphia, Jesus is saying the opposite will be true. It will be the Jews who think they're God's people. They will be the ones coming to you, Gentile believers, and they will be acknowledging that the true God, that Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Jesus just turns it, the, the verse in Isaiah 60, right on its head. He says, they think they're the ones that are going to be bowed down to when they're going to be the ones bowing. And they're not bowing in worship, they're bowing in submission. They're bowing in submission and realizing Jesus is Lord. Oh, they're, they're realizing. And I believe this is going to happen at the end of time when Christ returns. Remember in Revelation 1, Revelation 1 it says, every eye will see him. But at that moment, it'll be too late because Christ will be coming back. There'll be no more time to receive him as Lord and Savior. He's coming back to judge. He's coming back as king. And he says at that moment, that's when they're going to bow down and go, I missed it. Here's the Messiah. And I I missed it all along. I thought people were going to bow down to me. And now I'm realizing I was wrong. And so that's what Jesus is saying. And so the second thing we can expect, the first, we can expect a local mission field. The second thing in a world filled with problems and persecution is that one day all believers will recognize the one true God. One day, sorry, one day all unbelievers will recognize the one true God. One day all unbelievers will recognize the one true God. We hope that day will come sooner. We hope that one day people will realize that Jesus is the Christ and they'll put their faith in him before it's too late. That's what we long for. That's what we pray for. And that's why, that's why we evangelize. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, as Philippians 2 tells us, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can expect that. And so the persecution, the problems are temporary because those who persecute will one day say Jesus Christ is Lord and it will be too late for them, but they will have to admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. Moving on to our third point. It's found in verse 10. Verse 10 says, Because you have kept my word, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So because of the church's obedience, because of their faithfulness, he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. The hour of trial, I believe, he's talking about the tribulation period. If you read, keep reading in Revelation and beginning in verses chapter 6 all the way through 19, you read about all the things that are going to happen all the tragic things that are going to happen upon this world and upon unbelievers. And so that's what he's talking about, the hour of trial. This is not just a literal hour. It's seven years of trial that uh, three and a half of those are very intense that you can read about. But the main question here is, is Jesus promising deliverance from the tribulation or security through the tribulation? So which is he talking about? There's people on different sides of this, godly people on either side of this. I'll give you my interpretation. Um, But you have to look at where else is this used? It's used in John 17, 15, when Jesus prays, Father, keep them from the evil one. The same two verbs, keep and from, that are used here, keep them from the evil one. So does Jesus do that for believers? Absolutely. Do Do we experience... You know, uh, temptations, yes, we do. But Jesus keeps us from the evil one. That is, we are eternally secure once we place our faith in Christ. 
We belong to Him. And as Jesus said in John 10, no one can take us uh, out of His hand. And so, um, but the last part of this verse talks about the whole world. Remember, you see, uh, I'll keep it from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world and um, those who dwell on the earth. Now, those phrases are talking about unbelievers. If you go to Revelation 12, verse 9, it says, Satan is, de- is a deceiver of the whole world. And earth dwellers refers to unbelievers who, Satan, who follow Satan and experience the tribulation. And then if you read in chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation, the church is never mentioned. Now, it's an argument from silence, but I still I, I believe it's a powerful argument that the church is not even there in the, in the tribulation. So Jesus, I interpret this as Jesus saying, I will keep you from it. That is, I'm going to remove you so that you're not even in the tribulation. Now, some would say, no, Jesus is going to protect them as they go through it. But because the church is not even mentioned, and he's talking about all the things that are going to come on the whole world and on uh, those who dwell on the earth, which is talking about unbelievers, I believe Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you from the earth. And I believe that's the rapture. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to rapture you out. I'm going to rescue you out. And you're not even going to go through this hour of trial. So here's our third point. What can we expect? We can expect exemption from the tribulation. We can expect exemption from the tribulation. So we live in a world now where things are unfair and uh, all of those things are true, but the wrath of God is coming at some point on this earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to protect you from that. I'm going to take you from that and I'm going to protect the people who receive him as Lord and Savior. Now, verse 11 is our fourth point. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. He says that all throughout here in Revelation. I'm coming soon, especially toward the end. I'm coming soon. And so he says, because of that, he says, hold fast what you have. This is the only command this church was given. In all of these verses to Philadelphia, by the way, this is the second longest letter at 194 words. Of all seven of these letters to the church of Revelation, this is the second longest, and this is the only command. Hold fast, he says. Hold fast to what you have. What did they have? They had the truth. They had the gospel. They had Christian teaching. He says, hold fast to it. Obey it, is is what he's saying. Obey what you have. And so uh, Jesus is saying he's coming soon. It means he's coming without delay. Now, we could read this and say, well, he's coming soon. Well, that was, you know, close to 2,000 years ago. Well, for God dwells outside of time. And for him, a day is like a thousand years. So it's been like two days for him. And, uh, you know, but, but he, he dwells outside of this created universe. So he's not bound by time. It may seem long to us, but for him, he's being patient because he doesn't want any to perish. And so the fact that he, Jesus has not come back means that someone has the opportunity to get saved. Someone has the opportunity to hear the gospel and to repent with faith in Christ. And so uh, we want him to come soon. But we can be grateful that he has delayed the return of his son so that more people can be saved. And so Jesus says, hold fast. Hold fast to faithful Christian teaching. And the, the emphasis here is on maintaining their walk with Christ. In spite of all the circumstances and the problems around the, the believers at Philadelphia, he said, just stay true to Jesus. Hold fast to what you already know. Keep walking with Jesus. Walk by the Holy Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit, he's telling them. He says, and when you do that, he says, so that no one 
may seize your crown. Crown here is, is, is the word for victor's crown. It's, it's an, an award you would receive like an, at, an, at the end of an athletic contest. So the Philadelphians had festivals and games, as one source said, and so they were, they were familiar with that. So he says, hold, hold fast your Christian teaching so you don't lose your crown. He's, he's not saying lose your salvation, because we just said earlier we believe in eternal security, but he's saying you can forfeit rewards. We can get lazy spiritually. We can choose to disobey God's word. And when we do that, our salvation is still secure, but we have chosen to forfeit rewards. We have chosen to forfeit rewards that we will get in heaven. So he's saying, hold fast, keep walking with Christ because there are rewards waiting for you. Man, what motivation, what encouragement for all of us to keep, keep tracking with Jesus, keep obeying him because they are rewards. We can't see them yet, and, but, but they are real and they are waiting on us and um, it's going to happen. So our fourth point is we can expect ongoing persecution in this world. We can expect ongoing persecution. Jesus mentioned that there's some who are going to try to take that crown. That's what, you know, there's, so that no one may seize your crown. There are people who will try to distract us, who will try to discourage us from pursuing all that we, that we, that we want to be in Christ. And there are times that we get just personally distracted. We go through seasons in life, and, and, and so we can expect persecution. We can expect people not to believe what we believe. We can expect people to disagree with us. We can expect people to spread gossip about us or to say other false things because they don't share the same worldview that we do. Jesus says, hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to, what we, to the word of God, to what we know to be true because there is a crown waiting for us. So don't, don't forfeit your reward, Christian. Keep, keep going. Keep tracking with Jesus. Keep obeying him. Whatever he tells you to do, there's a reward waiting for us. So if you're experiencing persecution right now in some form, um, it may mean that you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. You, you are holding fast to Christ, and because of that, you're experiencing persecution. And the other hand is true. If you're not, then maybe we need to think, am I, am I really living for Christ? If, if I'm not experiencing, it, if things are just great, then, then maybe I need to look and say, am I really being as bold for Christ as I need to be? Uh, the English preacher from years ago, J.C. Rowell, uh, wrote this. If we are true Christians, we must not expect everything smooth in our journey to heaven. We must count it no strange thing if we have to endure sicknesses, losses, bereavements, and disappointments, just like other people. God has never promised that we will have no afflictions. He loves us too much to promise that. Wow. He loves us too much to promise that. But you know what? As we go through those things, he's right there with us. Jesus said, I will be with you. All authority has been given to him. He says, I will be with you to the ends of the earth. Um, Our fifth point, found in the first part of verse 12. Jesus said, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Now, when King Solomon built his temple, you remember back in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, when he built his temple, he had two literal pillars set up. He had one on the south and one on the north, and they had names. This is in um, 2 Chronicles 3 and 1 Kings 7. 
One was named Yachin, which means established, and the other one was named Boaz, which means strength, established strength. And the pillars in the temple represented stability and strength. And they, they possessed a permanent place, a fixed place right there in the temple. In the New Testament, we see pillars used metaphorically. In Galatians 2 and verse 9, James, Peter, and John are called pillars because they were the three men who, were the, you remember, the inner circle of Jesus. And so they were pillars. They were men who could be trusted because they had spent a lot of time with Jesus. And the church is also called the, the, the pillar uh, in, in verse, uh, 1 Timothy 3.15. It's called the pillar and buttress of the truth. That is, it holds up and supports the truth. And so pillars communicate stability and permanence. Now remember, Philadelphia was an earthquake region. And the walls were cracked, and many of the people, because of fear, lived outside. In practicality, they just lived outside the city because they were afraid to live inside the city. And um, Jesus is saying, I will make you a pillar. I'll make you a permanent home in the new Jerusalem, in the city of God that we're going to see in a minute, coming down out of heaven. In all of eternity, Jesus says, I'll make you a pillar. You'll no longer have to live and wondering if whether an earthquake's going to happen or I've got to move again or I, I can't go in that city because it's, it's, it's unstable. He says, I will make you stable. I will give you a permanent home that you can stay there forever. You'll never go out of it. You'll be there forever and ever with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it's incredible. We'll never again have to flee the countryside. So our fifth point is this. We can expect a permanent dwelling place. We can expect a permanent dwelling place. We have a permanent and stable home waiting for us in heaven. Or as we're going to see, it's called the New Jerusalem after Jesus returns. We have a permanent home waiting for us. Oh, be encouraged, Christian. I know things are up in the air right now, but be encouraged. There is a permanent home waiting for us in the New Jerusalem. Our sixth and final point is found in the last part of verse 12. Jesus makes several promises here based on names written on his followers. So there's three different names he's going to mention here that are going to be written on his followers, okay? The first one, he says, is the name of God. He says, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The writing of a name generally refers to ownership and allegiance to someone. If, if, if you have someone's name on you, it means you belong to them. As Revelation develops, we see that those who belong to Satan have a number or a name written on them. This is in Revelation 13, 17. And those who belong to God have his name on them. Revelation 14, verse 1. So the first promise about having God's name, means it means we are his possession. It means that we belong to him. So followers of Jesus Christ, he says, I will write my Father's name on you. And I'll write my God's name on you. That is, you belong to me. That you're, you, you, you have this permanent name on you. And so the second promise is the name of the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. Now, the new Jerusalem and all its magnificence is, is described in Revelation 21. It talks about God's presence inhabiting the city, and he'll finally dwell with his people there. And um, you can read about that. The only ones who will enter, it says in, in Revelation 21 27, are those whose names are written in the book of life. So all those 
in the Lamb's Book of Life who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they'll get to enter the New Jerusalem. And forever and ever we'll be there dwelling with God. There's no need for a son, no need for that. We have the presence of God there to illumine the city. And so the name of the New Jerusalem implies citizenship. Man, you've got citizenship in God's kingdom. So when Jesus says, I'm going to write my Father's name on you, you belong to Almighty God. I'm going to write the New Jerusalem, that name on you, meaning you have citizenship in heaven. You have a permanent place to live for all of eternity with Almighty God. And then he says, I'm going to write my new name on you. And um, wow, this final name uh, engraved on Jesus' followers is the new name of Jesus. And it means that we are related to Christ in a special way, as one source said. Uh, This is probably the name that was written on the thigh of Jesus that we see in Revelation 19, verse 12, that will be revealed at his coming. It says there's a name written on his thigh. This is probably the name he's talking about. So this name represents the full revelation of his character. It means Jesus saying, I'm writing my new name on you. He's saying, I have a special relationship with you. That means we have received him as our Lord and as our Savior, and we know him. He's not just a a good man. He's not just a a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's our Savior. That means we believe that he's paid for our sins and that he's he's mine. He's he's my Savior. I I belong to him. And Jesus said, I'll write write my new name on you. And and this special name will just, it'll be between me and my followers. And uh, it represents the full revelation of his character. 1 John 3, 2 says this, When Christ appears, talking about his his second coming, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So Jesus and all of his holiness and righteousness, he will appear and we will be changed. If if we're still living on the earth, if if we're already dead, our souls will be reunited with our bodies and, and we'll have glorified bodies at that moment and we'll be with him forever and ever. One writer said that the most amazing thing is not the meaning of the new name, but that we will get to share in it. We get to be a part of it because of what he's done in our behalf and because we've received him as Lord and Savior. Here's our sixth and final point tonight. What can we expect in a world full of problems and persecution? One day we can expect that we will have full likeness to Jesus Christ. One day we will have full likeness to Jesus Christ. We'll be like him, as John said, because we'll see him as he is. We're not, we're, we're, if we're a believer, we're hopefully becoming more like him, but we still have a sinful nature. But hopefully he's, he's transforming us every day. And one day we'll have full likeness to him. My sister has twin girls that are four years old. We got to see them last week. Beautiful, sweet girls. They are identical twins. And I can't really tell them apart. I, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't see them enough to, to get where I can really distinguish them. Um, now, if I'm with them for a little bit of time, I can. But it, when I first see them, I can't really tell them apart because they're identical. But even though they're identical, there are some differences. And you guys know that. But my, my sister and her husband, my brother-in-law, they can tell them apart. My parents can tell them apart because they know them. They know them better. They get to see them more often. They know there's distinctions in their personalities. There's, there's certain physical distinctions uh, that, that you can pick up on. 
And so they're, 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 they're alike, but, but they're different. And as followers of Christ, we're not fully like Jesus yet. We're, we're, still, we're still different because we have a sinful nature. And those closest to us can pick up on that. Our spouses, uh, good, good friends, family members, they, they know that. They see our, the areas that we're, we fall short. But one day, we will be identical to Jesus. We'll be fully like him because we'll see him as he is. Hey, this would have been a message of comfort and hope to this church. This was a church in unstable times, in an unstable area, and this would have encouraged them and comforted them and given them hope that a stable place in heaven was waiting on them and a crown was waiting for them if they would be faithful. But for those of you who hear this or those who originally read this and were not Christians, it's a warning. It's a warning that if you've not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will, will not be in the New Jerusalem. You'll be outside of the, of the city where there's darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's the wrath of God there for all of eternity. And so if that is you, my, my friend, then confess your sin to the Father and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's already paid for your sin. He's already, he's already paid for your sin debt in full. And so all you have to do is receive him as your Lord and Savior. And I plead with you to do that. If you've never done that, do it now. You can do it right now. Say, Father, I am a sinner. I receive the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And he says, and at that moment, you become a Christian. And then one day, Jesus too will write that new name on you. And you'll be with him for all of eternity. Hey, you guys remember Albert Einstein, one of the greatest uh, scientists ever. Uh, in the 1950s, I mean, he, from, and from a world stage, he was the very popular person, most famous scientist alive. Uh, yet he often walked alone and experienced loneliness later in his life. And there's a reason for that, uh, according to one writer. In 2016, David Bodanis published his book entitled Einstein's Greatest Mistake, The Life of a Flawed Genius. And at the beginning of this book, he shows a photo of Einstein walking in Princeton, and he's walking by himself, and it really characterizes the last chapter of his life. And so Bodanus surfaced the greatest mistake that Einstein made that led to his isolation later in his days. And this isolation was particularly experienced from other scientists. And so his, his mistake was not a scientific or professional one. It was a human one that any of us can make. Einstein was considered the greatest genius of all time. In 1915, you remember he created an equation that at the heart became known as the as, uh, as general relativity, one of the greatest works of all time. And it explained why black holes existed. It, it, it uh, laid the foundation for future technology like the GPS navigation. Um, yet two years after he developed this, this theory of relativity, in 1917, he adjusted his equation because there was new research coming in from astronomers that, 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 he, that challenged his theory. And he thought, well, okay, maybe I'm wrong. And so he he, he adjusted his equation just a little bit. So he re, And so uh, some years later, however, research revealed that Einstein had been right all along. 
and that his 1915 equation was right. And so it was correct. So because of that, he Einstein removed the addition that he had put on there in 1917. And so he referred to that temporary modification, 1917, as the biggest blunder of his life. He felt like, why did I listen to those people? If I would have just stuck to what I knew to be right, what I thought would to be true, then it would have, I would have been fine. But his greatest mistake had not occurred yet. He felt like he had been wrong to follow the flawed evidence from other astronomers that had led him to alter his equation. And so uh, they were wrong. He had been proved right. And so this is the conclusion he drew. He would never follow experimental evidence again. You know, other people can research, they can do whatever they want. In his mind, he thought, I'm not following their evidence because I did it before and it, it came back, to, it, it haunted me. It came, I paid the price for it. It came back to hurt me. And so he would just trust his own research, his own findings. And so later in his life, when his critics would bring evidence to him and research to him and say, hey, take a look at this, and, and it, it went against what he believed, he thought, I'm not paying attention to that because I did that before and it hurt me. And so he just ignored them. And he just felt like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be proved right one day anyway. And so it was not his old age that distanced him, distanced him from his colleagues. It was his failure to trust people. He just didn't trust people. And because of that, it distanced him from others' people. And that was his greatest mistake. And so a new generation of scientists emerged. They developed their own theories on nuclear physics and quantum mechanics, and they had all this evidence, and Einstein wouldn't pay him any attention and he because he didn't trust him. And so what could have been a door of opportunity for Einstein to engage and mentor a younger generation and to learn from them and maybe even to adjust some of his own things and make them better, he just decided, I'm not going to walk through that door of opportunity because I don't trust people. And because of that, he, he isolated himself and he missed out. And the author says that was his greatest mistake. And so although he was a celebrity in the eyes of the world, later in his life, working scientists had very little to do with him. And this is what Einstein said. The physicists say that I'm a mathematician, and the mathematicians say that I'm a physicist. I am a completely isolated man, and though everybody knows me, there are very few people who really know me. His greatest mistake was he didn't trust people. And our greatest mistake right now as a church would be not to take advantage of this opportunity that we have. Folks, God has given us an opportunity. People are hurting. Let's don't make the mistake of ignoring the opportunity. Take advantage of it. People are hurting. Take the gospel to them. The mission field is right here. Take the gospel to them and share with them God loves you, and he is going to help you through this if you will turn to him. That's our message in the midst of this hurting time. Let's ask God to help us do that. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And thank you that Jesus has paid for the sins of the world. He has the key of David. And that through Jesus, we can have access to you, Father. Thank you that uh, your word never returns void or empty. So I trust that you would apply this to our hearts and you would use this to minister to people tonight. For those who have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that right now they would do that. 
that you would move in their heart by your Holy Spirit and they would receive Jesus Christ. For those who already have done that, but they may have been discouraged, they're anxious, they're worried, Lord, encourage them. Lift their spirit, lift their heads, Father. Encourage them through your word, Lord, that this is not our home, that one day we will be with you and have a permanent dwelling place. We bless you, we love you, we thank you for loving us enough to speak to our hearts and for convicting us and challenging us when we need it. Lord, use this word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at Valleydale.